0: Well, Brush I want to start by telling you about a breakfast I had with a friend last week out in Inglewood, Colorado. Yes, I have a friend. I considered Pastor Bob my friend until he busted on my age, but we've had a falling out right here in church. I love meeting with TJ because of his enthusiasm for God. He came to Inglewood, I think, about five years ago with his family, and he inherited a church that had shrunk to about 25 people, right in the heart of Inglewood. And as the pastor of that church, God has really moved, and that church is now having an incredible impact and outreach in our little city of Inglewood. They've grown up to four or 500 people. They're uh, reaching out in, in wonderful ways. Uh, TJ is a coach in a baseball and football at the high school. We connected there because I coach basketball. Uh, they have a, a food bank every Thursday morning that feeds about 150 of the more destitute people uh, in Inglewood. In fact, our office is just down the road from this church, so. Uh, one week not too long ago, we took all of our staff over, and we volunteered and ran that whole food bank for a morning. It was just an incredible experience. The mayor of Inglewood came to Christ through this church, and he actually runs this food bank. Uh, they just are are doing wonderful, incredible things for God in a very needy community. So I look forward to getting together with TJ because uh, he's a man of great uh, vision and enthusiasm. But last week, as I sat down for breakfast with him, I knew it was going to have a different feel. He looked exhausted. He looked discouraged. And as we began to talk, uh, it became clear that he was in a really uh, troubled spirit place. Of course, he had just gotten back from Pittsburgh a couple of days ago, uh, Nothing against Pittsburgh, that, you know, that's not what troubled his spirit. He grew up there, but his mom had been struggling with a long illness, and she had passed away. So he went out to uh, bury his mom, and, but when he got back, he said uh, the things of the church and all that was going on was just so intense that he hasn't had the time to stop and even uh, recognize his grief and, and think about his mom and they're trying to start a, a youth center that uh, will reach out to many of the troubled youth. And there's lots of opposition in the community. And he said, there's some folks in the church who are, you know, feeling critical. And, uh, and just on and on and on after a really busy season. And he said, man, I just, I'm numb. And we, we talked, talked it through. And uh, I prayed with him. And I would love it if you would pray for my friend TJ, this pastor who's uh, really seeking to make a difference in the community that we love there, that, our, that we live in, that our office is in, and that uh, our kids have all involved in the school, schools there. But it, it, I remember after that conversation thinking about the question, how important is it that we are enthusiastic or passionate about uh, the work that God has called us to do? How important is it that our spirits are stirred up for whatever it is God is calling us to do? Whether you're a full-time pastor or a full-time leader of a Christian ministry, whether you have a full-time occupation, and you serve God there, but then you serve him in other places here at this church or in your neighborhoods. But things that you think about that you're doing for God, how important is it that, that your spirit is encouraged about what you're doing? Because I'm concerned for my friend that, that his spirit is down. And, and, and that is a normal part of life for sure. Something I've struggled with over the years is just those troughs where I just feel down or numb and I'm I'm just gutting it out. And you know what? In life, when it comes to walking with God and doing His work, uh, it's not about how we're feeling. As Eugene Peterson said, it's a long obedience in the same direction, a long obedience in the same direction. And every day I do dozens of things, like I'm sure you do, that I'm not enthusiastic about. I just do them because they need doing. Now, sometimes the joy or satisfaction comes later. Sometimes it never comes at all. It's not the point. And if we're just always measuring our spiritual life by, you know, how much enthusiasm we have for something or some things, that's the wrong barometer. Because it's about obedience, Long obedience in the same direction. But then on the other hand, Satan knows that if he can discourage us, if he can disillusion us, if he can distract us from whatever it is God is asking us to do, maybe something big and outside our comfort zone, it may be somebody he wants us to reach out to in our neighborhood, or somebody he wants us to pray for, or somebody at our, our work in our work environment that he wants us to love or talk to about Christ, somebody he wants us to serve, whatever that daily little thing is that God is saying, hey, this is my work for you today. Sometimes, like we see in this little book of Haggai this morning, sometimes it's our lack of spark and passion that either keeps us from seeing that work or keeps us from doing that work. And so that's where God's word is taking us this morning into this little chapter, 2 chaptered book of Haggai. So turn there in your Bibles and let's see what God has to say about this subject. Now I know you guys know where Haggai is, right? I, I've, been, I've been tracking that BP blast. I know you guys have done some minor prophet work and I love the fact that Pastor Bob will take you to some of the books in the Bible that none of us really want to study or look at unless we absolutely have to. The minor prophets for me have been like going to the dentist. It's like the part I need to do to stay healthy. I was teaching a portion of this book to a a group of men, businessmen, just a couple weeks ago. And I said, turn to the book of Haggai, and an older gentleman in the front row looked up at me bewildered. And I said, it's between Zephaniah and Zechariah. And he said real loud, great, now I have three books I can't find. (laughs) And my suggestion was, get an app, get it on your phone, nobody will know that you don't know where it is, because you have to go to the table of contents. He didn't like that advice. Haggai. So... Let's read the first four verses, and then I'm going to set the context and the stage. And we'll see what the prophet Haggai, thousands of years ago, uh, had to say to the people of Israel, this remnant, and what he has to say to us this morning, the Prairie family. In my Bible, the bold above this first section says, A call to build the house of the Lord. In the second year of King Darius, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. This is what the Lord Almighty says. These people say, The time is not yet come for the Lord's house to be built. Then the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your paneled houses while the house remains in ruin? Okay, let me tell you what's going on. Besides the fact that Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, I have no idea if that's how you pronounce the son of Shealtiel. I was going to ask Bob before I got up here. But I always tell our kids, when you're not sure how to pronounce something in the Bible, just do it with confidence and never admit it. Just turn to the book of Job and have a good time, right? (laughs) Okay, so here's what's going on. The context is really critical. So we we have a a number of cast of characters here. Uh, We have the politician, Zerubbabel. He's the governor. We have the priest, Joshua. We have the prophet, Haggai. And then we have the people, and we have a problem. In 586 BC, we know that uh, in fulfillment of God's warning to the people of Judah, King Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian Empire came in and destroyed Judah, leveled Solomon's great temple, and hauled them into captivity. Those that survived. And they're in captivity for years and years, and eventually the Persians come in and take over the Babylonian Empire, and King Cyrus of Persia, who through the prophet Jeremiah uh, released the exiles, some 50,000 people from Israel, released them and blessed them to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild their temple. And it's not that he was a God-fearing man. He had a curiosity about religions and listened to what God said through Jeremiah. And so they come back to Jerusalem, which is in rubbles. And Ezra is their leader. And this is before Nehemiah comes and helps them rebuild the wall. So in that period, Haggai and Zechariah are prophesying to the people. And their main job as they come back to Jerusalem is to rebuild the house of God. And it's an important job because uh, the temple was the, the place where God dwelt, where the Ark of the Covenant was through much of the Old Testament, where it symbolized God's presence with them, where, they, where the priests could go through the sacrificial system so they could have forgiveness with God. This was really critical. And so we'll, we'll look at Ezra in just a bit, but they basically uh, start the work with great enthusiasm and fanfare, and they lay the foundation for the temple. And now, it's 15 years later, and that foundation is all that is still built. That's the context for which Haggai prophesies uh, to this people. Why is the temple not built? The foundation was laid, and then the work stopped. Part of what we're going to see as we, we we can't read the whole book, but as we just pull key pieces from it, is that they lost all their passion and enthusiasm for rebuilding the temple. Now, as I've studied the book, I found four reasons why they lost that passion, why they stopped the work. And I'm going to give those to you and we're going to look, find out where they are in the text, and we're going to look at God's answers to the four, and then by then, it's going to be potluck time, right? <clears throat> Number one, they lost their passion because of their own comfort. So if you're taking notes, here's the four words. They're comfort, comparison, challenges, and compromise. Comfort, comparison, Challenge and compromise. Comfort. How did their comfort keep them from working on the temple? Haggai's already given us a clue in verse 4. He's asking the question Is it time, is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your paneled houses while this house remains in ruin? And then now if you look down in verse 9, God is talking about the fact that they're getting less crops, they're they're actually under a curse because they stopped doing what he asked them to do, and they're just kind of living with it. At the end of verse 9, he says, because of my house which remains a ruin while each of you is busy with your own house. All these things were happening that apparently they had gotten used to, but they were living in nice houses, paneled houses. And that that phrase there, because you are busy with your own house in in the Hebrew, it literally means because you're always running to work on your own house. So the first distraction for them was their own comfort. God said, rebuild my house, and they rebuild their houses. Panelled houses, you know, sounds like kind of something we all lived in in the 80s. It doesn't sound very attractive, Right? But in this time, that word literally means like the. It's got the fine cedar wood on the outside, like it's it's kind of houses that royalty would live in. These are not, excuse me, nicer houses, and they were focusing all their attention on it. One, one scholar uh, even thought because a little bit later on, uh, God commands them through Haggai to go up and get more timber for the temple, that the timber they got originally, they may have lined their houses. With the timber, the cedar from Lebanon that was intended for the temple of God. Now, there's nothing wrong with having a comfortable home. These folks had lived in exile for 50 some years. Who knows what they lived in? There's a part of me that feels sympathetic to the fact that they wanted to get their houses built and they had the means. Home is so important. Haggai is saying the problem is your comfort is not the problem. It's your priority of your comfort that is the problem to the neglect of what God has asked you to do, which is to rebuild his house first. And so for us today, I hope you're comfortable right now that you, you picked. An outfit that, that you like and are comfortable with, or or your wife picked it out for you. However that works in your home, I, I hope your shirt is 100% cotton because these blend with polyester and stuff. They, they just don't breathe like the good old cotton. I hope you're comfortable. I hope your shoes don't hurt. I hope you came from a comfortable bed. I, I hope you drove a car that got you here. Uh, <laughs> or you know there. I hope you're comfortable. There's nothing wrong with you and I being comfortable but I think the question, the first question we have to ask based on this text is, is our comfort our primary focus in life and do we focus on our comfort to the exclusion of waking up every morning and saying, God, what do you want me to build for you today? What is your work Is some of this money I'm investing here in my home or in my future, did you want me to give some of that away? Did you want to use that in some other means? Are we asking the question? Or have we gotten so used to our comfortable situation that we, like the people of Israel, who were probably walking around that foundation, maybe walking over it day after day after day, and despite the barrenness of the land... They, still, they didn't remember the job that God had asked them to do. So we have to ask ourselves. Here's a question Haggai asks in verse, in verse 5. Now this is what the Lord Almighty says. It's actually a statement. Give careful thought to your ways. Give careful thought. He repeats this four times in the book. People of Israel, people of Breastbury, give careful thought to your ways. These four things that quenched the fire of the people of Israel for God's work are very true and active, and we have to give careful thought to our ways because they're true and active for us today, but they're subtle. They're subtle. And the first one is comfort. Is that getting in the way somehow? We have to ask the question, based on God's word today. Number two, comparison. Now for this, uh, first of all, I'll go over to chapter two, um, where uh, this, is, this is God talking to the people, and um, he says, who of you is left who saw the, this house, the temple, in its former glory? How does it look to you now? Does it not seem to you like nothing? So what's going on here? Let's go back to Ezra, chapter 3, and Ezra is leading them in this process, but um, uh, 3 verse 10, so they're laying the foundation, this is back 15 years ago, verse 10, when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments and with trumpets and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with symbols, took their places to praise the Lord as prescribed by David, king of Israel. With this is after they've laid the foundation with praise and thanksgiving they sang to the Lord he is good his love to Israel endures forever and all the people gave a great shout of praise to the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid but many of the older priests and levites and family heads who had seen the former temple Solomon's temple wept out loud when they saw the foundation of this temple being laid, while many others shouted for joy. No one could distinguish the sound of the shouts of joy from the sounds of weeping, because the people made so much noise, and the sound was heard far away. What? In in some ways here we have our very, very, very first uh, worship war we have the older generation wanting the house of God to be like it was in his glory day and they are weeping when they see this puny little foundation because they knew the glory day. Then we have this younger generation who didn't know that. They were probably born in exile and they're rejoicing and and it's, it's such a mix that it's just confusion where it should have been just rejoicing because they were obeying God. And you know, Worship wars, they're they're still with us. They're going to be with us till Jesus comes back. If you don't know that, we're going to talk and argue about how we should worship, what that worship house should look like, until Jesus comes back and makes it clear that his favorite style is classic rock. (laughs) Come on now, you have seen his hairstyle. Jesus is a classic rocker. And I'm sorry for those of you that don't like it, but I just I just solved the worship wars for everybody. You should you should just be glad you came to church today. Jack. Talking to you, classic rock, dude. All right. But here's the second thing that can keep us from doing God's work is is comparison. Comparison. Now here's an interesting thing. They were, they were looking at this foundation and, and many, right, rightfully so, just grieving how small it was because they knew the glory of the former temple and that this was going to represent God's glory, his presence. That was a big, big deal. And they didn't have the joy and the enthusiasm because it was small. And I think that Satan is still pulling that trick on us. God says to you, whatever it is, I want you to go down the street and, and reach out to that neighbor that I put on your heart. Take him a pie, do something, reach out. And inside our thought is, what difference is that gonna make? There's a sense of what we're doing seems so small, you know, like compared to the missionaries and their great stories like this little thing, and we compare. Or we compare to times in our lives where we felt like God were really, was really using us. And we go, oh man, now I'm, you know I have more limited capacity. God, do you still, you still want to use me? And it just feels small. And, and we never get away from the temptation to compare and to be discouraged by how we compare. Uh, Just a few weeks ago, now I've been leading our organization, we've been a part of Cadence, our ministry of the military for 32 years, and I've been leading this organization, July 4th will be 20 years. So you think I would have gotten over the temptation to compare my leadership to some of my friends who are leading other mission agencies because that's my barometer, how are they all doing? And so we, we, got a, we got a book that describes what some missionaries in Poland, former Cadence missionaries, some of our close friends, they raised millions of dollars to start this camp in Poland to reach out to the youth uh, in Poland. An incredible ministry, a beautiful, beautiful facility. They worked hard. They raised a lot of money Uh, And we support them, we support it, and uh, you know, Cadence is a part of that. And I'm looking through this book of these beautiful pictures. And here's what goes on in me. Rejoice, rejoice, and about halfway through, this little voice. You're, You're a leader of a mission agency. Why can't you raise millions of dollars? Flip the page. Cadence doesn't have these kind of beautiful facilities because you've raised money. That's what leaders of mission agencies do. And as I got to the end of the book, instead of just be fully rejoicing in the work that God was doing in Poland through that camp, I was discouraged. Fortunately, I recognized it right away, I repented of it, and I got back to a place of rejoicing. But that's how quickly it can happen. For everybody, when you compare. Number three, they face challenge. Let me just tell you what happened in the book of Ezra. As soon as they started building, the surrounding people came in and said, hey, let us, they were trying to weasel their way in. Now let us help you build this temple. Their motives were not good. And the, and the people of Israel said, no. This is God's work, God's people. And then it says that those outlying people began to uh, scheme ways to discourage them. And that throughout the whole building process, they were at work trying to keep them from doing God's work. Challenges. Anytime we want to do something big or seemingly small for God, we should expect challenge. People who don't like what we're trying to do or we, we try to reach out and we get rejected instead of appreciation for what we're doing. We're going to always have Challenge. Satan and his minions and the world are always working against the people of God. Now, if you're not doing anything for God, and you're not getting any challenge, well, that's nice. But I know in all of our hearts, no matter what our occupation, we are soldiers for Jesus, and he has a job for us every day for him. And number one, he wants us to do our job well and treat the people in our workplace well. He wants us to love our family. He wants us to love our neighbors. He wants us to be a part of his community of believers. He wants that every day for us, and specifically for you and me. He he has a job for you, but the challenges will come. Our youngest son is gonna be a senior in high school next year. He is currently in Cambodia right now. They just spent two days getting over there and they're going into a remote village uh, to run a vacation Bible school and to do some building projects for some very impoverished, impoverished uh, village and, and very impoverished kids. And Cadence has a work in the region with Cambodian military. So a few years ago, we went through to see our work. And Jonathan just, he just resonated with the country as destitute and harsh as it is. So he's been praying about going on a missions trip. Well, he is at the beginning of almost two-week trip. And with him is his best friend, Zane. Zane is a relatively new believer. Jonathan led him to Christ a few years ago. He comes from an unbelieving family. And we all together just thought, Zane, you know, this could be a game changer for you. He, he hadn't been out of the country. He didn't have a passport. He had a lot to overcome. He didn't have the network of people like we do to say, hey, you want to be a part of this? to raise the $2,900 so these guys can go. And he started with great enthusiasm. But then I remember the day Jonathan came home and said, Zane's not going. And we're like, no. And so we had, the four of us, a long visit just talking about what was going on for Zane. And and we don't know all the pieces, but we're certain some of it is coming from you know, a family and friends who don't understand going to Cambodia for two weeks to, to go to an impoverished place to do work, and and he was just discouraged. Excuse me, discouraged and down. And we talked and prayed about it, and then it was a few days later, a little while later, the next day, God had done a work in his heart, and he and he said, "Okay, I'm 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 going by faith. <laughs> I'm going to do it." And it was a an incredible moment when uh, we got the news that Zane's full support was in. And it came in before Jonathan. (laughs) Loved it. And it was so fun to see Jonathan rejoicing in the provision of God for his friend. Both of them right now are in Cambodia. He had to overcome those challenges. Or he wouldn't have been there. And the last one is compromise. And again, for the sake of time, let me just tell you, back in Haggai, a lot of chapter 2 talking about the people's sin. And it's interesting, it talks about, you know, if you, if you have consecrated meat, you know, can that make other things holy if it touches and No. But if you have a defiled person or something defiled that touches a consecrated meat, it, can, it will instantly defile it and it's no longer worthy of sacrifice. And the principle there is sin is contagious. It impacts immediately. Our sin touches the people around us just Like a disease. Holiness is harder to catch. Have you noticed that? (laughs) Those of you that are parents, you've noticed. It takes a lot of work because there's so much going against it. Well, in this situation, the people's sin and compromise had also just killed their enthusiasm for this project, so they stopped working on it. All right, so let's see what happens. Look at verse... One verse 12. Zenzherubbabel, son of that guy. Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the whole remnant of the people obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the message of the prophet Haggah because the Lord their God had sent him and the people feared the Lord. Okay, great response. They were not getting done what God wanted them to do. God's word came and they feared God and they obeyed God. And what happened? Then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, gave this message of the Lord to the people. I am with you, declares the Lord. So the Lord, and here is the heart of this book. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, son of Jehoshadak, the high priest, and the spirit of the whole remnant of the people, They came and began to work on the house of the Lord Almighty, their God. On the 24th day of the sixth month in the second year of King Darius, to be specific, it took them four years. They got the job done. Why? Because they heard the word of the Lord. They responded in obedience to it out of fear of God. Yahweh mentioned 29 times in this book. And then the Lord, because they responded, stirred up their spirit. One translation says, spark their enthusiasm to get them going again. Put the passion in their hearts, and they went for it. I love that. Sometimes we have to do things day in and day out. Whether we have enthusiasm or spark for it, God just wants us to do it because it's Long obedience in the same direction. Sometimes God wants to spark us and stir us and say, do this thing. Whether it's going across the street or going across the ocean, something great, something small. What is it? That God wants to spark in us. Well, when that happened, and I'm just gonna summarize this next section, God provided four things for them. So, if you're taking notes, here's the four things He provided power, He provided purpose, He provided presence, His presence, and He provided peace. Power, purpose, presence, and peace. The power is best described by Zechariah when he's talking about Zerubbabel in chapter 4. And he says, So he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, the governor, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this temple. His hands will also complete it. Then you will know that the Lord Almighty has sent me. And then he says, who despises the small things? And he's referencing the, the plumb line that had to be used to get this thing started. He said, who despises those? The work of God is done in the small things. The temple was built day in and day out by people putting brick upon brick and mortar upon mortar. That's how the work of God gets done. Not by might, not by power, but by my spirit. This work was done. God will give us the power we need to do whatever it is he's asking us to do, but we won't experience him and realize that power unless we obey and follow his voice. He gives us purpose. I mean, Zerubbabel, what, uh, late, the very end of the book, he talks about how Zerubbabel is like a signet ring for God. He becomes that precious to him. He's a symbol of God's authority. And to deal with our comparisons, God says, this is what I want you to do. I'm calling other people to do other things. This right here is what I want you to do today. And he gives us that clarity of purpose. And then he promises his presence in uh, all of chapter two for the challenges they were faced. And this is his promise throughout all of scripture. I will be with you. I will be with you. I promise my presence. And he basically says, the Spirit's not done with you, little remnant. Not done with you. Still got a job for you. I love that. It's true for us. God still has a job for us. And then finally, look at verses 8 and 9. Look at verse 9 of chapter 2. God is talking about them comparing it to Solomon's temple. He says, The glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house, says the Lord Almighty. And in this place I will grant you peace, declares the Lord Almighty. The glory is going to be greater. They couldn't have imagined how in the world the glory of this little footprint could compare to what was before. And God's promise to them of peace. Well, Here's the rest of the story. In Luke chapter 2, there's a young couple, Mary and Joseph, coming with their son who is of age and it's time for him to be dedicated and consecrated at the temple. The temple. And Simeon, who had been there by the Holy Spirit waiting for the Messiah to come, his heart leaps with joy as he sees Jesus. And this temple that they built survived the collapse of the Persian Empire and all the silent years between Malachi and Matthew. And Jesus, the Prince of Peace, the Son of God, the King of Kings, and the Lord of Lords enters with his presence into this temple that these people built brick by brick. And the glory of God came into that temple and the person who could bring peace to the entire world, not through a, a law of sacrificial system in one place, but through the sacrifice of his blood on the cross, peace, true peace with God for the world, his glory was in that temple, Luke chapter 2. You see, God, God really takes a long view. <laughs> when he said glory is going to be greater, he meant 500 and some years later, they never saw it. They didn't know. They just did what God asked them to do. Because God has a bigger picture and the long view in mind. And you don't know. When you offer water in Christ's name, whatever that is in your life that God is saying, hey, get out of your comfort zone. Don't you worry about how this looks compared to everyone else. And who cares if you're criticized And purify your heart and go do this thing today. This is the work I have for you. The impact that might have for generations to generations to generations. That's God's business. It's his kingdom. And he is not done with you. No matter what your age, young or old, God wants to use you. This is the message of the prophet Haggai that God wants to continually stir up the spark in us for his work. Sometimes, now for these guys, I think it was about 24 days between the first word and when the Spirit stirred them up. Sometimes for us, it's longer. God's doing a long work to to re-spark us for his work. Sometimes it happens in a moment. And I'm thinking of a coaching moment I had this year that was my least finest, my, my worst coaching moment of the last five years. I'm coaching JV at our high school. And I've got a, a bunch of, you know, interesting, diverse, troubled young men that I'm coaching. And the reason I'm coaching is because I love them. And I want to bring Christ to them every day at practice and at their games. I want them to experience Jesus through me. Many of them don't have fathers in their lives. Well, we were in a game that was going particularly bad. In fact, at the end of this end of the varsity game after our game, there was almost, you know, a scuffle between parents and fans. I mean, it was like it was like we were in the hood and things were getting, you know, I had to I had to kick a guy off my own team because he was about to uh, throw down, you know, with the ref. So this is, these are who I'm coaching. You know, you you get the feel. And I mean, this stuff was happening and we got to halftime and I was giving it to the boys. They were not playing well. They were distracted by all this and, you know. And one kid was not listening and I don't, man, it just sparked fury in me. Now I was, I don't believe coaches have the right to treat their players with disrespect. I don't know why coaches feel like somehow this is different than the rest of life. But when I'm coaching, I can say anything I want, I can speak with contempt, I can embarrass these kids. No, you can't. They're human beings and they have the right to be respected. So I don't believe in that kind of coaching. It doesn't mean I don't get forceful and excited, but I do not treat them any differently than I would the staff at my headquarters or my kids or anybody. So that's just a pet peeve of mine. If you're a coach and you're a screamer, write Bob and he'll show you the scripture (laughs) that'll help you out. So I've been intense with him before, but I blew up at this kid. I reamed him out. I embarrassed him. I I was extremely articulate in my fury, and I just was out of control in what I was expressing to him. And right near my last sentence, I finally looked him in the eye, and I realized I was making a huge mistake. Because, you know, I... I work with other coaches, and one of them was more of a screamer, and, and kids respond differently to that. Some, some kids are like, yeah, hey, great, whatever, you want me to do that? Great. It's like you're you're treating me like I'm trash, but ha-ha, right, put me in. There's some kids like that. <laughs> and then there's, there's other kids who just, you can just see the shell go over them, because that's all they've ever gotten at home and in their life was that yelling. And then there was this kid. He was looking up at me, mortified, with tears coming down his face. I was like, oh, crap. Can I say crap at church? Because that doesn't even describe how, how I felt, but I won't use how I felt. Oh! And I stopped myself. And I said, guys, I'm out of line. This isn't right for me to treat Ethan this way. Would you guys go on out and warm up for a second half? I need to talk to Ethan. And I got down on my knee in front of him and said, Ethan, I am so wrong. I was so wrong to do that. I need you to forgive me. Please forgive me. I don't believe in this. You were getting a whole bunch of stuff the whole team should have got, and I was just out of line. And he literally went like he couldn't believe that his coach was asking for his forgiveness. It was a moment in my life where I remembered that even in a moment, the work of God can get sidetracked by all kinds of things, including our own sin and our own fury. But we can hear God's word in a moment and get back on track. I apologized to him and you know he responded so tenderly to that. And then I went out to the team, I said, guys, gather around. and I said, I need to apologize to all of you. I don't believe in this, this was wrong. And man, you could just see the, the strength that came over those boys. And we still got our butts really kicked. <laughs> I'm like, wait a minute, you know, God promises th- these people, like, the harvest is going to be great. It doesn't always work that way. We got whooped. <laughs> but the spirit of the guys was completely different, and our relationship turned a corner from that point on. So here, as, as I wrap up, because potluck, I, I smell the potluck. <laughs> Here's a question. What today? You know, before we leave this, this house of God, you know, what, what does God want to stir up in you? Is he bringing somebody to mind? Is he bringing a, a situation to mind? Is he, I don't know. But unless we ask him, Lord, get me out of my comfort zone for a little bit so I can hear you, whatever you are asking me, what do you want to do? Oh, there's more in the book. I'll, you know, Dig through it. There's all kinds of cool stuff about God shaking the kingdoms and then the promise in Hebrews chapter 12 about us inheriting a kingdom that will never be shaken. Good stuff. But let me just close by telling you how I see in the last few weeks my bride Joyce living this out. I don't know what you think about missionaries or leaders of organizations and what we do. I hope you don't think like we're just like out there floating on clouds, you know, putting putting you know, the power of God, sprinkling it out onto the military communities around the world. And you know, we have a, a worldwide com- conference coming up in one month. I really would love you to pray for it. All of our staff and missionaries are coming from nine countries to be together in Green Lake, Wisconsin. We do this every five years, a week long. And we need, we need the spirit to, to move amongst us. And, and I, oh, would you just pray? I feel stressed about it. I feel stressed about it even as I tell you that that's why we have prayer requests, right, Steve? You're gonna pray for me, Steve? Okay. Whether it, to me, that feels like a big, a big deal, but it's just like, it's a lot of brick on brick on brick on brick on brick between now and then and for the last few months. It's not this glorious, whatever, missionaries floating in on wings. I don't know, you know, what you think about missionaries, but we are you and you are us, with different occupations, all children of God, all soldiers of Christ, all of us God having work to do. So just in the last few weeks, I've watched Joyce. Uh, You know, we're very involved in the Inglewood High School. Our daughter Kyrie graduated last year. I told you something about how hard that was to, to let her go last time I was with you. She's done a year at Corbin. She's back home. It's going great. But she, you know, we have all these friends. Joyce, I think we filled out about 38 graduation cards. I don't know how many invitations to graduations because our friends had friends in between and next year it's going to be even more with Jonathan. He's a social butterfly. He knows everybody. Love it. Joyce, some years ago, wrote a book, a little pamphlet called As You Go. As You Go On From Here. And it's just a little pamphlet that we insert in the card. A book, I don't know what to call it. And it's just filled with, wisdom about how to start their life away from home and we give it to all the graduates it's been great response and of course there's scripture and a witness for christ in it so she's you know getting that printed all these cards going to graduation parties and then we're packing to come out here and uh you know jonathan if if we let jonathan pack for cambodia he would have taken his passport and a big bag of gummy bears (laughs) and that's how he would have lived for two weeks So Joyce is down there with him in the hallway with all this stuff out. She's talking through. She's just getting him ready, getting just a few hours sleep the night before we left. And we get out here the last two days. She's been serving on the Multnomah board. She's been in meetings, you know, doing whatever God asked her to do in those meetings. And then last night we were with friends who've been through a hard time, and she was up late with, with the spouse, the lady, talking, just listening, processing what God was doing in their situation. See, and now we're here. That's that's the work of God. That's not just daily life. That's, it can be. But anytime we do something in Jesus' name to bless other people, to think about them and to care for them, that is the work of God. And God wants to provide us his spirit and power for whatever that is that God's bringing to your mind. Let's pray, let's pray, let's pray. So Lord, I pray, I do, I ask you, by your spirit, That you would encourage us this morning. That you would show us that little thing or that big thing you want us to do in your name that we may have forgotten about. We started years ago. We avoided or we didn't even think about because we were too concerned about our own life and not your kingdom. Show us that thing and help us to respond like the people of Israel, Lord. To obey you, whatever that is so that we might experience your presence afresh anew. Stir us up, I pray, for your glory in Jesus' name.